Welcome back to Informed and Inflamed, where we seek to inform our minds with truth in order to inflame our hearts with love for God and neighbor. I'm Brad Owens, and I'm excited that you're joining us today for another episode. In this episode, we're going to take a look at a few wonderful words in the Bible. Some of these wonderful words are ones that we don't often use in our everyday conversations. For the most part, we only come across them as we're reading our Bibles or perhaps listening to a sermon. And although these words may be somewhat unfamiliar to us, they are so important to understand because of how they communicate realities at the very heart and center of the gospel. So here are the wonderful words we're going to take a brief look at in this episode. Three words, redemption, reconciliation, and propitiation. But before we take a look at each word individually, let me say a quick word about why it's important for us to grow in our understanding of biblical and theological words and concepts. When we are learning a new language, we're seeking after fluency, which is being able to speak that language with greater and greater ease as we become more familiar with the grammar, the syntax, and how to string sentences together and, most of all, communicate effectively. But as we grow in fluency, our ability to enjoy fellowship with other people grows because we're able to share more and more with them. And the same goes with our relationship with the Lord. As we grow in fluency with biblical and theological words and phrases, our fellowship with the Lord grows. And as our fellowship with Him grows, we undergo a greater degree of formation into Christ-likeness. So the movement goes from fluency to fellowship to formation. And this is a process we are involved in throughout the Christian life as we grow in our love for the Lord and in actual conformity to His holy character. Another way to say this is to say that our gospel understanding leads to gospel astonishment. And gospel astonishment will lead us into gospel outreach for the sake of others. A growing understanding of God's Word fuels a growing amazement of God's work of salvation for sinners. The reason understanding these words in the Bible is so important is because our gospel understanding has the glorious potential to fuel and to feed a deeper hunger for God and a deeper delight in the gospel. And as good old John Piper likes to say, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. So understanding God's wonderful words in Scripture and delighting in the realities they communicate is how our hearts find satisfaction in the Lord. And that's why so many of the Psalms are constantly expressing the Psalm writer's deep delight in God's law. Psalm 119 verse 97 says, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. And Psalm 19 verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. 
So as we grow in our understanding of God's Word, our hearts are continually refreshed and re-energized with zeal to know the Lord and to live for His glory. So now let's move on to consider the small handful of wonderful words from Scripture. First, let's think about redemption. Romans 3, 23 and 24 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified or declared righteous in God's sight and therefore made right with Him. It says, And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Redemption, in a nutshell, is to buy something back. It is the payment of a price to obtain possession of something. D.A. Carson, in his book Scandalous, talks about how back in the day you could take a valuable item, say, for example, a nice watch. You could take it to the local pawn shop, get a chunk of money to get by on, and the pawn shop owner would work with you to set up a redemption period. And During this redemption period, let's say you both agreed that it would be six months, he would not sell that watch to anyone but would hold on to it. And if you could come up with the redemption money, the original price plus a percentage, within the specified time frame, you could redeem or buy back your watch. And the same idea is found in Leviticus 25, verse 29, for example, which says, Anyone who sells a house in a walled city retains the right of redemption a full year after its sale. During that time, the seller may redeem it. So when the Bible talks about the redemption that comes through Christ, it is talking about how all those in Christ have been bought back by Him. A price has been paid, an unimaginably costly price, in order to bring us back into relationship with God. That price, of course, was the death of the Son of God, who took our place so that we might be set free. You could also think about redemption in terms of a ransom, We've all seen action movies where someone gets taken captive and asks for a ransom. Some ginormous amount of money that must be given to get the loved one back. And the ransom is a price that's paid for the release of the one being held hostage. And in Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus gave up his life as the costly payment for sin's penalty so that we might go free and never have to pay it ourselves, even though we deserve to. Redemption is such a rich idea in Scripture. And reconciliation is another word that beautifully paints a picture of our salvation in Christ. Let's think about reconciliation now. Reconciliation is about two or more people coming back together to enjoy a peaceful relationship after a period of estrangement and hostility. And 2 Corinthians 5 is a great place in Scripture that gets at this reality of reconciliation. Verses 17 through 19 say this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. And behold, the new has come. 
All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And most importantly, all of this is possible only because of verse 21, which says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, these verses clearly put an emphasis on reconciliation. So it's important that we understand all the theological richness that is packed into that word. Remember, reconciliation presupposes relational brokenness and separation and hostility. Reconciliation is all about addressing the problems in a relationship in order to bring peace into the relationship. Or to put it another way, reconciliation removes relational hostility and replaces it with relational wholeness. But before we come to know the Lord by placing our faith and trust in Christ, the Bible says we were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's Colossians 1 verse 21. And it's talking about us being alienated from God and being hostile to Him. Left to ourselves, we would want nothing to do with God. Because we want to rule over our own lives, God's authority to rule over us is seen as a threat to our happiness. So we resist and kick back against His claim over us. And Isaiah 59 verse 2 says that our sins have separated us from our God. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, we have been exiled from God's presence because of our rebellion against Him. And the corruption of our hearts that leads to this rebellion is what the gospel so beautifully addresses. Through the gospel, our rock-hard, resistant, and stubborn hearts are made gloriously new so that where there was once hostility toward God, now love for God reigns supreme. And usually on a horizontal level between two or more people, Each person has to adjust and make changes in order to make the relationship work. It costs everyone involved something in order to bring about peace. Otherwise, a relationship would just fall apart. What is so remarkable about the gospel, though, is that God took all the cost upon himself to deal with our hostility and to bring us back together into a healthy relationship. We didn't do a thing to contribute to this reconciliation between ourselves and God. God did it all. Now, of course, He calls us to change, but the big difference is that our relationship with God does not depend on how well we change. That's what makes it so wonderfully different from all other relationships. God bridged the gap and did everything necessary to bring us back to Himself. As 1 Peter 3, verse 18 says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us back to God. So in Christ, our sin-driven hostility toward God is overcome and reconciliation is made a reality. Now this has so many implications for our horizontal relationships with each other as well. 
Just as God took the initiative to make things right with us, we too should make the first move to make things better when we face problems in our relationships. What's even more incredible is that God did absolutely nothing wrong, and yet He was still the one to move toward us. Even in those moments when we feel like the other person should be the one to come to us because we don't think we've done anything wrong, we should still pursue them. Of course, not all the time, but most of the time we have done something to contribute to the relational trouble. Maybe we're not aware of anything we've done, but if we develop the habit and reflex of moving toward one another in the midst of conflict, we will be in a much better position to learn and to understand how we may have unintentionally contributed to the problem. Instead of avoiding each other or giving each other the silent treatment, as we're so prone to do, we should approach each other humbly and respectfully, which often means we need to spend some time in prayer talking to God about our frustrations first. Again, this is only scratching the surface when it comes to how much the doctrine of reconciliation has to offer by way of practical application. A great place to start digging into this more would be the book called Resolving Everyday Conflict, which was written by Ken Sandy and Kevin Johnson. This book does a magnificent job of unpacking the glories of our salvation in Christ and how the Lord calls us to imitate Him in seeking reconciliation with others and in sharing the good news of how non-believers can experience reconciliation with God through Christ. So I highly recommend that book if you'd want to dig into reconciliation and resolving conflict some more. Now, let's move on to the last word that we'll consider together in this episode, and that is propitiation. In Romans 3, 23 through 26, the Bible tells us that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says this, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So this is definitely one of those words we rarely use, if we ever use it. Because this is an unfamiliar term, we can miss the richness that is being communicated with this word. But propitiation is specifically the satisfaction of divine wrath by the offering of a substitute. And the result is that wrath is turned away from the worshiper because it is exhausted on the sacrifice that is offered in the worshiper's place. Back in ancient times, if you were just an old average Joe pagan preparing to go on a sea voyage, you would bring a handful of animals to offer as sacrifices to the god of the sea. And by sacrificing animals to the god of the sea, your hope would be that the sacrifices would secure the god's favor so that he would give you good weather on your voyage. You wouldn't want him to have any reason to be angry with you as you go on your journey. And that's how the idea of propitiation worked in the ancient world. But Christianity, on the other hand, certainly has some overlap with this, but it also contains an incredibly significant difference from the pagan understanding. In ancient paganism, the worshiper offered the sacrifice to turn away the wrath of the gods 
and to obtain their favor. In Christianity, however, not the worshiper, but God himself provides the sacrifice that serves as a substitute for the worshiper. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the ultimate sacrifice that is offered to satisfy divine justice. And in John 10, verse 18, Jesus said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. So the Son of God took on human flesh in order to voluntarily lay down his life as a sacrifice for sinners. By his sacrifice, he has completely absorbed and exhausted the wrath of God that we deserve to endure for our sins. Only because of Christ can the righteous anger of God be turned away from us. And the reason it turns away from us is because it was turned toward him. He took it as our substitute. And now all those who have placed their faith in Christ never have to fear experiencing God's wrath. Although we deserve it, the beauty of the gospel is that Christ took it for us, forever freeing us from the penalty for sin and bringing us into a right standing with our Creator. So that is a very brief overview of just a few of the wonderful words found in the Bible. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Informed and Inflamed. I hope that this quick look at a few grace-saturated words from Scripture will only serve to deepen your desire to enjoy the Lord, to know His Word, and to walk faithfully with Him in every area of your life.